What's up, skeptics? Welcome to another episode of Reason to Doubt, your source for all things skeptical. I'm Jordan, joined with Jared. And today we are hitting CMI part two, part deuce. Uh, their video we responded to a couple weeks ago. It is entitled, Why the Earth Can't Be Old. And last time we covered the first part of the video where they talk about radiometric dating. They talk about the assumptions that go into it and they incorrectly assert slash lie about how you can't test those assumptions in the present. And we went, spent many, many minutes telling you exactly how you can do that. So. So the well, last Jordan half, spent many many minutes. I, I yeah. listened and with glazed over eyes. So. Yeah, Jared just you know smiled just, and nodded, hit the yeah. I believe button. But hopefully someone got something out of it. Today we're going to cover the second like third of the video. It should be shorter today, and we're going to pick up right where we left off. Mark Harwood had just finished talking about Mount St Helens and tried to use it as a way to debunk radiometric dating. That didn't work, and now he continues. But there's something else you can do. You can test different dating methods on things which must be about the same age. So let me give you an example. In Queensland, there's a mine where about 20-something metres down, uh, a drilling discovered a, a basalt layer from a lava flow, and uh, it, had f it had passed through a forest and there was charred wood still there. So the basalt was dated using potassium argon at 45 million years. The wood was carbon dated at something something like 45,000 years, a factor of a thousand different, but they must be at the same age. Mm -hmm. So even I know that they're right tool for the right job, right? Mm -hmm. That's the thing. Right. And certain, there's limits to how things are tested and the efficacy when you get close to the ends. Is that a thing too? You nailed it right there. Exactly. Good job. Okay. Gold star. <laughs> Someone was paying attention last episode. So one immediate warning flag, as you pointed out, uh, the age he quotes is 45,000 years, and that's very close to the upper bound of what radiocarbon dating can do. Usually 50,000 years is the uh, age you'll hear thrown out there, but anything even close to that is suspect. And that's still true today, and it's especially true back in the 90s when this was done, you know, Technology advances were better now than we were 30 years ago at doing these kind of tests, right? Now, the reason for this limit, do you know the reason? Where you listed? Wait, it has to do with decay. It does. And uh, the half life. Um, at some point, all the, all the decays happen, it can't decay no more, basically. Man. Hey, plus, okay. good job. Okay. Yeah. yeah the half-life of carbon-14 is about 5,500 years. And uh, just in case you didn't watch last video, if you started with 1,000 grams of C14, uh, after 5,500 years, you'd have 500. After 11,000, you'd have 250. It just goes by half every time, right? So if you're at 50,000 years, that's like almost 10 half-lives. So you're down to like 0.1% of the original C14, and it only made up like one part per trillion to start with. So it was already a trace amount, and now you're down to 0.1% of that trace amount. So you're really bumping the end, the edges of what can possibly be done. A, I, I, for this critique, I used the work of a friend of the channel, his name's John, goes by Age of Rocks. He's a geologist. He does radiometric dating as part of his work. And he also runs a blog, which I'll link in the description below. So the things he pointed out as issues with this work, the, the CMI video doesn't say who they're citing. Of course, why would they give us 
the source for any of their information. But this claim comes from another creationist who's Andrew Snelling. He is a famous creationist and liar uh, who publishes in creationist journals. Yeah, this, this is one of those that I feel confident saying he's lying because he knows better. But in any case, uh, he reported these results, basalt just like described with wood in it. His results, though, were kind of all over the place. He sent it to two different labs and the two different samples to two different labs. So each lab got sampled from two different kinds of wood, right? And the ages from these woods, none of them touched each other. They were all over the place. And the two different labs yielded very different results. One of them measured about twice as much as the carbon-14 as the other one for the same wood. And if, you know, if it was everything was hunky-dory, you'd expect them to get similar results, right? Right, yeah. So this is indicative that the C-14 is actually coming from contamination as opposed to being intrinsic to the wood. And you might think, like, well— if one like doubled the amount of C14, that's a lot of contamination, right? But as you pointed out, there's almost none left. And in fact, in this case, there's probably none. There's probably zero percent. So, so actually any contamination it. at all makes the <laughs> right because there's almost none. So if you add just a little bit of contamination compared to the amount that's actually there, which is zero or a very slight amount, you know, it's going to make huge swings in your dates, right? So you add that tiny bit of contamination, it changes your day by 10,000 years. But if you added that same amount of contamination to a sample that was 2,000 years old, it wouldn't even budget. Because if it's only 2,000 years old, you've got 70% of your original carbon-14-ish. Uh, and so remember, it's exponential decay. So the younger it is, the more reliable it's going to be just because you have more carbon-14 to count. So within bounds, I mean... There's limits to everything, but anyway, that's that's a general rule. And like you talked about in your last in the last episode, you know, we have ways to mitigate contamination by testing multiple samples. So like you could exactly, this, right? and they did that here. Except when they tested the multiple samples and the the results are all over the place, the right answer is oh, this must there must be something wrong. Like it's probably contamination or whatever. The the answer should not be aha. These are actually forty five thousand year old wood and thirty five thousand year old wood. You know whatever. Right. That's the wrong answer. Which wouldn't work for creationists anyway. It's still too old. But you know, I guess we'll leave that aside. But it's actually worse than this because the samples themselves came from rock that was about twenty meters below the surface. And while that seems like a long way, that's actually close enough to the surface that groundwater can percolate through that rock. And so the water that's from the surface contains modern atmospheric C14, but also according, now I'm quoting uh, John the geologist, organic acids that bond tightly to the wood. The wood fragments show evidence of being altered by intruding waters. End quote. So based on the work that Snelling published, it appears that they have been contaminated with surface water, which would throw off the entire endeavor. So there's other problems. Again, link will be in the description below. But don't worry, CMI doesn't say any of this. They just keep on going. <laughs> um, yeah. But what about um, yeah other evidences for a young age? Look, there's a lot of these. Um, let me just give you a few. Um, and these are the sorts of things that people never hear about, right? Yeah. The river systems around the world today dump about 20 billion tonnes of mud and sediment onto the ocean floor every year. Now, we can take an average depth of mud and sediment. We can calculate approximately how much is there. We know the rate at which it's being added to. So we can place an upper limit on the 
age of the ocean floor. And it turns out all of that sediment at the current rates, right? We're just taking a process, which we observed today, yep. we're winding it backwards. Yep. And all of that would have got there in less than 12 million years. Interesting. Hmm. Something tells me that the way that they're doing this math is not proper. Yeah, probably. I bet you can't guess where he gets this information from. I bet you can't guess who he's citing. Um. Nope, I can't. <laughs> Andrew Snelling, once again, the guy okay. from the last thing. <laughs> he doesn't say so, of course. And he actually quotes it in a way that's even more wrong than Snelling's work. So first at the outset, creationists do this all the time. As much as they want to jump on people for doing things like radiometric dating, it's like, oh, you weren't there. You don't know that the rates have been constant. They'll take like, oh, the rate of deposition for mud right now, this second in this lake in my backyard is this much. Therefore, that's what it was across the entire planet for, you know, <laughs> they'll just wildly extrapolate with no justification. Right, like the moon is getting closer by this much every year. And if you go back, guess what? 6,000 yeah, years ago. It was smacked into the earth or whatever. Lower. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No more nuance necessary than that. But in actual fact, Snelling again published a paper. And what he pointed out was the 20, he did point out the 20 billion tons of deposition per year. But he also talked about a billion tons of being taken out of the system by tectonic plate activity, by subduction. And he said, oh, look, the difference, that's the 12 million years. That's the piece that this guy missed. Now, again, referring to Age of Rocks, link in the description, uh, Snelling cites that 20 billion year deposition from a paper uh, called Geomorphic slash Tectonic Control of Sediment Discharge of the Ocean by Milliman and Savitsky. And that was written in 1992. Snelling is citing it in 2012. So it was about 20 years old at the time he was citing it. And that's now, an actual scientific paper, journal, not a creationist thing, right? Correct. It is an actual for realsies journal made by real scientists and everything. So that, that part is good, right? And the number that he quotes, he cites, 20 billion tons of sediment, that is in the paper. Okay? So, so far, <laughs> two for two. Unfortunately, <laughs> where it is in the paper is in the abstract, Okay, so the number. So the number. Let me let me pull up the quote exactly. Uh, so here's the quote from the abstract: Before the proliferation of dam construction in the latter half of this century, rivers probably discharged about 20 billion tons of sediment annually to the ocean. Okay, so before the widespread damming, it was 20 billion tons. Apparently. Snelling stopped reading right there because the next sentence, the very next sentence says, prior to widespread farming and deforestation beginning 2,000 to 2,500 years ago, sediment discharge was probably less than half of the present level. In other words, oh. Snelling's starting a factor, like doubling the, the deposition rate just right. to start with, right? It, because he couldn't be bothered to read the next sentence. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. But, okay, <laughs> it's even worse, though, uh, because if you don't rely on 30-year-old science or 20 years of his time and you, like, cited modern stuff even at the, around the time he was publishing, uh, the rate was expected to be somewhere closer to 5 gigatons per year, right? Okay, but 5 is still more than the 1 that he thought you're, is being taken out of the system, so maybe it would be 12 million, but still not 4 billion, right? But it gets worse. <laughs> I see a trend here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because Snelling, while he does mention a geologic process, one geologic process uh, occurring in the deep oceans, right? Uh, the 
cut the the heat the the number he cites one billion years being taken out in the deep oceans. That's not where this deposition is happening, though. The deposition is on yeah, the coast. On the coast, right, where all the dirt is, you know. Yeah, the rivers are <laughs> dumping the dirt into the ocean. Right. He ignores all of the stuff that's <laughs> happening over there, right? And just focuses on one number from one paper that talks about one very specific situation. In fact, the process of subduction, which is, you know, material being sucked down into the earth's mantle, cycled, right? Uh it's sufficient. It happens quickly enough to completely recycle the earth's crust about every two billion years or so. So it's fine. It's not, it's not, we're not like gonna, I don't know where he thinks this matter is coming from, but whatever. And like, it's just being created. Okay. This is, I guess. Yeah. But even worse than that, like there's another place that sediment can go. It can turn into sedimentary rock. That's how it gets there. In fact, that's like their whole thing. Like creationists think all rock is sedimentary rock because they think it all got <laughs> laid down in the flood. So like his entire model, his entire worldview is like every rock you see Everything the light touches with sedimentary rock, but he just completely ignores that for this situation. What about that rock over there? <laughs> right. Yeah. So, yeah. Again, just more nonsense. And Mark doesn't cite his sources. He doesn't talk about any of the problems with the sources. He just throws it out there as if it's fine and continues on. So what we have here is a failure to communicate. <laughs> we have somebody cherry-picking, we call it that, an article – and then we have somebody cherry picking the cherry picker and a lot is getting lost in transmission with probably even less understanding than Snelling had of the situation or the data or anything. <laughs> yeah. Else. Yeah. Okay. But you know, what's boring? Dirt's boring. You know, what's exciting? Space. Space so, is cool. So let's go to space. Outside of the earth, looking into our solar system, people think that astronomy is, you know, just a lay down misere of proof of evolutionary processes and vast age. Uh, the moons of Jupiter, uh, absolutely fascinating. There's lots of those. Uh, back in 2018, they discovered another 12. They were interesting because they were what are called retrograde moons. They orbit Jupiter in the reverse direction from all the others, wow. which rotate around Jupiter in the same direction which Jupiter itself is spinning on its axis. Yeah. So that's a bit interesting. That's another story. But in this group of 12 going backwards, there's one going forwards. <laughs> and so... You know, the, in the uh, the article in the journals, the scientists said, this is an unstable situation. Head-on collisions would quickly occur and grind the objects down to dust. But they're not dust. They're still there. Mm. So just how long can you fly upstream in amongst all these other moons with an orbit that crosses their paths and not collide? So what it says is those moons orbiting Jupiter have not been there for four and a half billion years lucky to have been there for one million years. Mm. So it's a pointer to a recent creation. Okay. Um, let's just take everything he said there at face value. He still gives us to a million years. <laughs> right. Yeah. So like, that's still not great, but like, and I looked into this, most of what he says is, is by and large correct. It, he, he didn't really fudge the truth there too much. So we can just take wholesale everything he said. What that shows is that these 12 moons of Jupiter have been orbiting Jupiter for a million years or less, which tells you precisely dick all about the rest of the solar system, let alone the universe. Like, Right. Yeah. It's like, uh, so imagine Jupiter is the magician at your child's birthday party and he's juggling three balls. He's juggling them. And then he says, hey, throw me another ball. Now he's got four balls. Guess what? Jupiter can get more moons. Right. right. Yeah. 
if in fact one of the reasons why earth is hospitable for life is because jupiter constantly catches stuff by like a linebacker he's like the bouncer at the door you're not getting in here like right exactly that's why jupiter has so many moons because it's constantly sucking up space junk right and last time i checked it's a pretty big celestial body it is pretty darn big the biggest one in the solar system outside of the sun of course so yeah it's imagine you had a car and you got new tires added to it. This is like somebody pointing at those new tires and saying, look, this car can't possibly be from 2015. Those tires have only been on it for a year. Like what? That's ridiculous. (laughs) It's so ridiculous. Yeah. It could get new boots. It's not a, it's not a big deal. (laughs) Now, the evolutionists can always make up a story and they'll make up a story that says, ah, well, maybe there was a collision nearby and the debris got captured in Jupiter's orbit and ended up in this nice circular group going the wrong way except for one which is going the right way. Uh, but anyway, let's move on. Mm, number <laughs> so, of specific collisions, I think, are needed, yeah. It's, it's, it's a long bow to draw. Yeah, got you. No, it isn't. We just talked about this. It, it's, not, it's not a far-fetched story at all. Like uh, some space junk came in, had a collision, it was all chaotic, stuff was like mixed around, and now it's orbiting Jupiter. Like what, what is weird about this? Yeah. Do you know why, Mark, that people keep saying those things? It's because that's what happens. Like, yeah, like it, it. It's an explanation for the observation we have that uses only mechanisms that we know exist. We know that there are things traveling through space. There's all these objects outside of our solar system called the Kuiper Belt that are kind of in a cloud around this, uh, around our solar system. But there's other objects in interstellar space as well. We know that they sometimes come into the solar system. In fact, remember that one actually recently, the one that was like shaped like a tube and was kind of tumbling over end over end. It came in from yeah. outside the solar system and everyone was like, oh, it's aliens. You know, remember that? Well, that like wasn't was aliens, but yeah. wasn't aliens, <laughs> but you know, it was interesting as interstellar junk that came into the source. Yeah. It's like, this is something that happens. And so all you need, if you have interstellar junk and you have gravity, then sometimes that interstellar junk is going to get caught in a gravity well. That's like, this is so mundane. It's interesting to me that he obviously knows the objections to the thing that he's saying or the explanations to it, not objections. He's making objections. But yet he doesn't look into it any further to see why people are making those explanations. Like, Well, I mean, I think Mark knows what the truth is and is just lying, honestly. Again, from last episode, because he has a PhD and he's read all these papers, like he's either engaging in some hella motivated reasoning or he's just, you know, I could be being dishonest, lying for Jesus. Far more likely that the creator made it that way mm. so that there's an indelible stamp of his creative genius on the moons of Jupiter showing us that they were recently created. Is that more likely? Stamp it, bro. Is it is a mad okay? Okay, imagine you were an almighty omniscient deity and you were like, you know what? It may not be clear to these humans that this thing was made 6,000 years ago, mainly because I made it look like it wasn't. So rather than fixing all of that, I'm just gonna throw a rock at Jupiter real quick. (laughs) That'll fix it. Like, what? What? (laughs) It's like it's like an Easter egg in space, like God's like, hey. I know the rest of this looks like it's billions of years old, but if you see this thing out here, uh, like, yeah. <laughs> no, that's not more likely at all. Actually, that's, at all. that's far less likely. Saturn's rings are decaying away at an alarming rate. The Cassini space probe 
passed through the rings multiple times towards the end of its life. And the results are that scientists believe, secular scientists, that the rings cannot be more than 400 million years old. So there's no really plausible model for how they formed. Um, here they are, and they're decaying rapidly. Okay, so that math thing again, where we project current rates back to like... But, okay, so in this case, he is citing... Well, he, again, doesn't say who he's citing, but the number he gives is more or less what scientists say. Okay, so okay. that far is fine. But again, what this would mean is that Saturn's rings are about 100 million years old. That's all it would tell you. It doesn't tell you anything at all about Earth or Saturn or the solar system or anything. So all you mean like, when Saturn was originally formed, it didn't just have its rings like right then and there? It kind Not of like these rings, at least, apparently. God, it's like, like wisdom teeth popped out. Like, oh, I got rings now. Like, yeah. 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 Like the rings are temporary. They're a temporary feature that are there for a period of time. We happen to be fortunate enough to exist at a period of time where we have this rings around one of the gas giants. The other gas giants have rings too. They're just not as big and fancy and cool. Uh, but yeah, he says too that there's no plausible mechanism for how they formed and that like just up, oh, there's no plausible mechanism. Definitely don't check guys. Don't Google it. You know, don't look eyes here, you know, <laughs> because if you do check, there's all kinds of plausible mechanisms. Uh, here's one example of an, of a mechanism that's discussed. Uh, there are interactions, uh, between Saturn's moons. So Saturn, just like Jupiter, has a bunch of moons. And uh, some of them may have uh, interacted with each other in a way that caused one to uh, destabilize in its orbit. And so as they pass close together enough, it one got disturbed. So its orbit became unstable and it got too close to Saturn because it got too close, the, grav the gravitational forces ripped it apart. And then that would, it would naturally form a ring of debris on the it's plane staying in that plane of the exactly right, right. Yeah. Uh, and so there are, are some observations to support this observations of titan's orbit titan is one of the moons of saturn indicates that if this is what happened then it would have needed to have happened about a uh, hundred million years or so ago which matches what the age of the rings appears to be so is that definitely what happened not sure but that is a plausible mechanism for how it could have and and Whatever the specific mechanism is, it's some piece of junk that got too close to Saturn and got ripped apart. Like where the piece of junk came from is not necessarily clear, but it, you just need space junk. It's not. <laughs> I, I don't know. We, no. We've beaten that horse enough. It's it's dumb, is what it is. <laughs> but don't worry, we're not at the bottom of the barrel yet. We we okay. can go deeper. <laughs> I sense a theme here. Now look at the population of the world today. It's about 8 billion people, it was recently estimated. Do you know when I was born, the Earth's population was 2.5 billion? Wow. And when I was doing my postgrad work, it was about 4 billion. And now it's 8 billion. So how long can we keep on projecting this? And you go backwards. Now, here's the problem, you see. If you look at the number of people that survived the flood... Um, and there were six people who then populated the world, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's three sons and their wives, and take, let that population grow at the rate of about half a percent for four and a half thousand years, you end up with eight billion. There's half a percent, is that reasonable? That's a very conservative growth rate. The growth rate today is more like 1% or even more. Wow. So more than sufficient uh, to allow for things like wars, famines, and diseases. 
But if mankind had been on the planet for 100,000 years or more, where are all the people? We should be shoulder to shoulder on every square metre of the Earth's surface, including the ocean basins, and that wouldn't be enough. So this is definitely one of those math things. This is definitely one of those. Okay, so here's just a rule of thumb when it comes to statistics or math or anything. If something can't grow exponentially forever, it won't. That's... (laughs) <laughs> like okay have you ever seen those videos on the internet where like mice got into a green silo and you know they crack open the door of the green silo and it's just like a flood all the of grains mice gone, yeah. all the grains gone just hundreds thousands of mice running out there this is like saying look at how fast those mice repopulated in a hundred years the mice will bury the earth like that's exactly what this is look but, but the grain's gone what are they eating? exactly the food's gone it's not like pe- people we, we don't like does he not know how food works? Like <laughs> people can't just reproduce forever. If they reproduce just like any other animal, if the population exceeds the amount of food that's available, they'll stop growing because they'll be starving to death. Yeah, exactly. Oh my gosh. It, yeah. This, uh, if you, if you stop to think about this for seconds, then it, it's obvious how dumb it is. And also using today's growth rate is especially dumb because we have GMO crops and vaccines. Not that his audience uses them, but, you know, some people do. Better health care, all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, we're we're living longer and we're and it may be too that uh, the, the, the rate goes down at some point. Sure. Yeah, it probably will. In fact, birth rates have been declining. And so, again, we're not just going to keep procreating forever like a virus, you know, until it, and it's dumb. <laughs> So it's not consistent with the idea that we've been on this planet for 100,000 years or perhaps even longer. Sounds like you can't even go back 10 or 20,000 years. I just with the, I've not looked into the numbers, but just from what you're saying there. Well, that's right, but it's <laughs> quite consistent with the biblical timelines. I've not looked into the numbers, but I'm definitely just going to accept what you said uncritically and not think about it at all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, like, and, you know, it's it's not consistent with the genetic timeline like okay so they they said look if we cherry pick this particular growth rate the growth the the growth rate number we need to get the number we need starting at noah's flood to today's population that's what they did they didn't like do any kind of science to determine anything like this they just found the number that was convenient threw that on there but like leave that aside if we did take noah's flood right so there were three pairs of people that were procreating What's going to happen very shortly after that? Like, okay, so the first three pairs, they're like husbands or wives or whatever, but like there's not many people. <laughs> yeah, there's left. only so much stepsister porn you can watch on Pornhub before. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like like this is going to be the most profitable book, book in the Bible <laughs> for sure. Step Noah, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Six is not a viable population <laughs> to grow the the earth. Uh, the numbers I found just from a quick Google were 50 to 500-ish, depending on how tolerant you are of uh, getting close to your family and bottlenecking and stuff like that. But uh, no worries, just like one or two orders of magnitude off of what the Bible says. Yeah, the, no big deal. The genetic fallout of that alone would probably... Uh, yeah. It would be a problem. I mean, uh, cheetahs are a great example of a species that is very inbred and had a severe bottleneck in the recent past. And they're so inbred, you can 
like take a skin sample from one and slap it on another cheetah, and the like, the, there's no rejection that happens because they're so genetically um, similar. Which is great if you're doing skin grafts. Not so great if you're trying to survive in the wild. Um, another one which is very interesting: the discovery of uh, carbon fourteen in uh, dinosaur bones and in fossils. Uh, everywhere the remains of living things mm. consistently show the presence of carbon-14. Carbon-14 has a relatively short half-life, about 5,700 years, so quick that you really would not expect to find or be able to detect carbon-14 for more than about maybe sixty to 80,000 years. That's just maximum, maximum life or maximum time you can Yeah, but to be carbon. able to, you know, be down to maybe a molecule and, and then that's going to ultimately decay away as well. Funny how they didn't remember that at all, like yeah, ten minutes weird, ago, right? Yeah, yeah, it's okay. It's okay. It's fine. I'm sure. So he clearly knows, uh, right? He clearly <laughs> understands the problem with radiocarbon dating things that are yeah. that old. But you know, okay. So Man, creationists love them some dinosaur bones, don't they? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. They do. Uh, and so the claim being made here is that there's carbon fourteen and dinosaur bones, and if the carbon fourteen, so if the carbon fourteen came from the atmosphere, and if there is actually carbon-14 in these bones, then the bones can't be older than 100,000 years or whatever, you know, depending on how much you carbon-14 you measure. But those are two very big ifs. First of all, as we've seen, if you look at the numbers that they come out with when they do these kind of things, they are always like 50, 40,000-year-old ages. So it's already brushing against that actual limit. So you could just dismiss it from that. Also, a lot of times, these are close, they've been exposed to water and things like that. So that also is a problem. But even if you set all that aside, there's more than one way to get carbon-14. Like the way that animals get it, or plants, you know, breathe it in from the atmosphere. We eat plants. Animals eat animals that eat plants, whatever. That's how you know, the life cycle gets into you. But that's not the only way carbon-14 shows up in the atmosphere. It shows up because of interactions with cosmic rays. Well, you can have something similar happen in the ground. All it takes is a neutron being thrown at nitrogen to get carbon-14. If you've ever watched our Shroud of Turn videos, this is Bob Rucker's hypothesis, but underground, right? And not all magic collimated and stuff. So... <laughs> <laughs> I have done some calculations on this. I did mine for coal specifically, talking about carbon-14 in coal, and I showed that you could get, with just the trace uranium that exists in coal, the uh, particles, the spontaneous fission that happens in uranium very rarely is gives off enough neutrons to keep uh, an amount of carbon-14 that would date in like the 60 to 50,000 range. So there's like some carbon-14 being produced just over time. It's in what's called secular equilibrium, uh, with which means it it's about the same amount. The decay rate of the carbon-14 is about equal to the decay rate of the uranium. It doesn't matter. Nobody cares about that but me. So it's kind of, so, so to put to, to put this in layman terms, kind of like if you were driving your car and you get a half a tank of gas, but then you put a fuel thing in and start filling your gas tank up at the same rate that you're using gas. It just kind of stays in yeah, half a tank. So Imagine like you're filling up a, a pitcher or something. You're filling up a container that has a hole in it, okay? And you're pouring water in. Eventually, if you, it'll get up to that hole and it'll just stay even. It'll just stay out the side. Yeah. Right. It's kind of like that. So the uranium in the coal or in around the fossils or whatever, spitting off neutrons occasionally, producing carbon-14, then you could detect that. Again, you don't need that to explain 
the observations they see that can easily be explained by contamination. But this is yet another way that you could get this, in fact, will definitely get some amount of carbon-14, even things deep under the Earth. So I'll put a link to my <laughs> calculations. And I think we talked about that in a previous video, too. So We probably did. So to recap this video, it seems like, Mark, what he's doing is throwing out um, claims without evidence to things that seem intuitive to somebody who has no understanding of what it's whatsoever. So if I already believe that the earth is 6,000 years old and he tells me, well, the moons of Jupiter couldn't be there unless they were 6,000 years old because one's going backwards and the other going this way and they would crash into each other. And then I'm going, Oh my gosh, wow, that makes sense. And then I just go about my day. Yep. That so is Exactly how it works. As a former creationist myself, I can tell you that the purpose of these videos is not to increase knowledge or anything, even among the flock. It's to tell the flock, someone very smart thought about this, so you shouldn't think about it. Or if you are going to think about it, here's creationist sources. Go look at those and don't look at anyone else because you can't trust the scientists. They're liars. They're you know unreliable, whatever. Like That's the, the mindset of these big creationist organizations that they foster in their uh, people. And they have to, because if you go outside of that echo chamber, the evidence is overwhelming that they're wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I mean, it's mind blowing to me that people like Mark and uh, Snelling, who you mentioned earlier, they're obviously aware of this, but their belief and their faith is so strong that they're able to live in this world where they know the truth but yet they still somehow I, I don't I don't know how you could do it. I I don't know. I mean like your rank and file creationist they just are ignorant. They just don't know. Yeah, yeah. Like that's fine whatever. And th- there are some like uh Ken Ham is a great example. That's who's just a grifter. Straight up, he's just in it for the money and the power and whatever. That's all he cares about, right? Uh for someone like Snelling or this guy, I suspect that they are lying at least to some extent, because they're, they're at least lying in that they know more than they tell their audience. Like, I am sure Mark understands these problems better than what he's portraying, and he understands some of these objections, and so he's setting his audience up for failure, not telling them all the details, right? Which I think He is lets dishonest. him of that slip at the end of the video that he knows exactly. more. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So I think that's dishonest. But maybe he, he actually believes, even though he's like kind of obscuring the truth, maybe he actually believes what he's saying, which, I mean, that's got to be some next level cognitive dissonance like yeah yeah i don't know i I think for some people they have convinced themselves that there's only one interpretation of this holy book and if that interpretation is wrong the book is wrong and therefore that interpretation must be right and just just ignore anything to the contrary and maybe it's it's something more like because they're using dates that obviously don't fit with a young earth anyway so what they think the earth age is um, so maybe it's more of they're just trying to use sciencey terms so they can sound le- legitimate, but they don't actually believe that the science. So they're I think aware of the science, they just don't believe it, but they're using it to try to make themselves seem smart. Yeah, combination of all of the above in different proportions depending on the creations you're talking. But these are all very similar or very consistent features in professional creationist apologetics. Honestly, I think that it, it is counterproductive, not just for an understanding of science, but also for their stated purpose of promoting faith. Because if you set it up such that, hey, the only way to be a Christian 
is to believe that the Bible, this interpretation is correct. And they basically drawn a line in the stand and said, science is on that side and we're over here. And if they're right, the Bible is wrong. Well, you've just set yourself up for failure. Like there's a lot of people, myself included, who found out that young earth creationists was young earth creationism was nonsense and ended up leaving the faith. Now, I don't know if I would have stayed in the faith had I not been a young earth creationist. I don't know, right. but I'm certain that there are at least some people who are atheists now who were young earth creationists who would be Christians if not for people like AIG or CMI or whatever. So I, I honestly think they're they're acting against their own stated interests. You know, one could say that they're almost propping up an argument for science <laughs> that is so hollow that it's easy for them to just knock down. True. Like, yeah. yeah. Like like a man made of straw, which like is a straw man, yeah. Fallacy of the day. But before we talk about that, if you're watching this video next week, next you wouldn't know when next week is, but if it were the week after we recorded <laughs> it, it's because you're watching it with all of the people on YouTube. But if you want to be part of a very special club who got to see it some number of days earlier than that, you can join our Patreon and then you can see it whenever we post it. As soon as it's done, we throw it right on there uh, just for you. It's an unlisted video, etc. So if you want to support this channel, that would really help us out. Uh, but with that out of the way, fallacy of the day is a straw man. So a straw man fallacy, what you're doing when you commit this fallacy, like you said, is you make a version of the argument that your interlocutor has that is easy for you to take out. It's incorrect. You mischaracterize them in some way, and the position you've built for them is easy to knock down. And then you do so, and, you know, huzzah, you win. Yeah. It's almost, it's important, too, that the the main structure of the argument is still there. So it resembles their argument in some way. Right. It has, but, but it, the context it, is not. In order to work, it has to have barely some superficial resemblance yeah. to the argument, but it's different in some kind of crucial ways. Now, it's possible to straw man on purpose, and which would be dishonest in some uh, to some extent. Of course, it's also possible to inadvertently perhaps misunderstand your opponent's argument or not try very hard to understand it and inadvertently create a straw man to defeat. So you should attempt, when you can, to do the opposite, which is called steel manning, where you interpret the argument as charitably as possible. Basically, you if there's anything that doesn't make sense or there's some ambiguous wording, you interpret it in a way that's charitably in, in a way that's better for your opponent and that way you're you're dealing with the strongest version of the argument and if you can defeat the steel man version well then whatever they actually meant is fine this was a this was a double bonus fallacy video that's that's right well that'll make up for, i'm sure we've forgotten at some point in the past so that'll make up for that <laughs> so that's our fallacy of the day be sure to like the video if you liked it. Subscribe for our cool stuff coming up. We've got a great interview coming up in a couple weeks. We'll be interviewing Dr. Steve Mason. He is a historian who's written extensively on the works of Josephus, among other things. And we'll be interviewing about his work on Josephus and how it ties into the Jesus mythicism debate. We're going to talk about James's brother, but also just like more broadly on Josephus, how scholars interpret it, what's the right way to do scholarship, just kind of have a, a good, well-rounded discussion on the works of Josephus. So that's super exciting. I think we've got that scheduled for, I think, three weeks from now. Uh, but yeah, that'll be live stream. We'll definitely post on all our social medias when it happens. But do co uh, comment if you are interested in us interviewing someone else. If there's someone else you think we should get on the channel, let us know. Until then, remember, you've always got reason to doubt. Peace out.